One of the best pieces of advice I received was the saying, show, don't tell. I really I like delivering rather than talking about delivering. Don't talk about your knowledge of Apache Airflow. Show it. You know, don't talk about your knowledge of Python. Show it. What's up, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Artists of Data Science podcast. My goal with this podcast is to share the stories and journeys of the thought leaders in data science, the artists who are creating value for our field through the content they're creating, the work they're doing, and the positive impact they're having within their organizations, industries, society, and the art of data science as a whole. I can't even begin to express how excited I am that you're joining me today. My name is Harpreet Sahota, and I'll be your host as we talk to some of the most amazing people in data science. Today's episode is brought to you by Data Science Dream Job. If you're wondering what it takes to break into the field of data science, check out dsdj.co forward slash artists with an S for an invitation to a free webinar where we'll give you tips on how to land your first job in data science. I've also got a free open mastermind Slack community called the Artists of Data Science Loft that I encourage everyone listening to join. I'll make myself available to you for questions on all things data science and keep you posted on the bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check that out at artofdatascienceloft.slack.com. Community is super important and I'm hoping you guys will join the community where we can keep each other motivated, keep each other in the loop on what's going on with our own journeys so that we can learn, grow, and get better together. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode and don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, love, rate, and review the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Local Spotlight edition of the Artists of Data Science podcast. If you've been around me long enough, you've heard me talk about my grand vision for helping transform the city I live in, Winnipeg, into the center of excellence for data science across all of North America. Our guest today is hands down one of the best data scientists in our city and someone who I've been trying to get to work with me for a long time. One of these days, I hope to win him over. He's got expertise in data science, applying a combination of skills that he's developed over the years in computer science, mathematics, statistics, and economics to solve some of the most pressing transportation problems of our time. He's the author of one of the most awesome blogs that I've ever come across for all things data science and beyond, and provides a ton of value through his two newsletters, the Data Science Newsletter and the Spaced Repetition Newsletter. He's even been generous enough to create an open source Anki deck that allows you to download his brain. Throughout his career, he's applied his problem-solving and programming prowess to conduct data analysis, exploration, and visualization to present research findings for his stakeholders. He also works on developing software tools to increase productivity and automate tasks related to data entry, data cleaning, and reporting. In his spare time, he crushes Kaggle data science competitions, having placed in the top 5% twice and has developed data-driven web applications, including an online resume website and the backend API for a conference organization web application. He loves the challenge and excitement of continuous learning, developing new skills, and solving hard problems. 
especially those NP hard problems. He's earned a Bachelor of Economics and Mathematics from the University of Manitoba and has gone on to complete a Master's in Economics at Western University in London, Ontario. His work experience includes a seven-year stint as a Senior Research Associate at PRA, where he participated in and managed research projects involving a wide variety of methodologies and domains. He's currently a data scientist at the Transportation Division in the City of Winnipeg. So please help me welcoming our very special guest today, Mark Nagelberg. Mark, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your schedule to, to be on the show. Really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Um, Thanks so much for having me. So, so talk to me about the path that led you into data science. Well, that started probably when I was an undergrad. I decided to major in economics, which I say was the beginning of my journey. And that led me into a math background because it turns out economics is actually pretty highly quantitative field. And if you want to do graduate school in economics, which I did, it's really valuable to have a lot of math and actually a lot of pure mathematics. And in fact, some people recommended to me that I just major in math rather than economics. So I decided to do a double major economics math. Along the way, I took a lot of statistics and programming courses as well. And that eventually led me to PRA, uh, where I worked there as a research associate doing qualitative and quantitative research. So I uh, self-taught myself programming in my spare time because it was just something that interested me. And uh, I had a lot of um, my eye on doing more programming data work. Eventually, that led to doing more Kaggle competitions. I found ways to apply programming skill at my job, started a blog. And then eventually, I came across the job posting for my current job as data scientist at Traffic Signals Branch at City of Winnipeg. And given the skills I had built up over the previous seven years or so, working towards a data science career, it was just a perfect fit. I looked at the job description. It was pretty clear this is right for me. So I applied for the job, got the job, and I've been there for almost two years now. Awesome background you've got. It's actually quite similar to my educational background as well, having studied economics and statistics. Um, you mentioned that you got a, a blog, which, which is actually how I found out about you. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your blog and how that's helped you learn and grow as a data scientist. Yeah, absolutely. The blog has been pretty huge for me. And the decision to start a blog was a pretty clear and easy one because it had a bunch of clear benefits at the outset. So one of them, and I've, you know, it's, it's always nice when decisions are clear like that, when it's an obvious decision to do something because there's just so many reasons to do it. Like one of the reasons was learning by teaching. It's pretty well established in the learning literature that teaching is one of the most effective ways to learn. We have to constantly learn as data scientists because it's such a broad field and so many skills to wrap up on. So writing a blog post about something you just learned about is incredibly valuable because it helps you learn. Another thing is just improving written communication skills, like being able to write. That's another really good reason to start a blog. And I think it's a pretty underrated skill for a data scientist to have is being able to write effectively. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists.
Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, I, I totally agree with that sentiment because when you teach something, you get to learn it twice. Um, so I think your your blog is definitely a testament to that. Um, and you know, you're mentioning something very important here, and that's communication skills that are necessary to really be successful as a data scientist. And I've seen you post on LinkedIn about Toastmasters, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what Toastmasters is, what pathway you chose, and how you see your career as a as a data scientist benefiting from being a part of this amazing club. Yeah, sure. Well, Toastmasters is basically just a group that you join to improve your verbal communication skills. So there's lots of Toastmasters club clubs in Winnipeg alone. I think there's about 60. My club, we meet every Wednesday, uh, Vinio Dictum Toastmasters club. And so you get together with these in these meetings and they're pretty structured and they are designed to train basically every part of public speaking that you can imagine. Everyone has a different role and it trains some different aspects. So there's grunt master who's listening for anyone who says um or ah or you know, those types of things that infect your speech and make you sound less competent. There's a timekeeper that keeps track of all the time. There's a table topics master who runs the impromptu speaking session. There's a place to give speeches. So it trains a lot of different aspects of speaking. And one of the great benefits is everything is, a, is evaluated too. So when you give a speech or you when you do anything there, there's someone else that's listening and will give you feedback about how well you did. So I think it's, it's beneficial for anyone, especially people that struggle with public speaking. Personally, is something I struggled with immensely, um, especially impromptu speaking. Being asked questions without being able to prepare in advance, that just struck fear in my heart uh, probably three years ago. And going on a podcast like this actually would have been a very frightening thing for me then. But now it was actually kind of exciting. I look forward to it. And I owe that to Toastmasters. Really effective job interviews, presentations, communicating results to management. I wish I'm a big advocate. I recommend it to anyone. I kind of wish I started going when I was 10 years old. So I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, definitely, man. It helps to have a safe space where you can practice these skills and, and know that whatever feedback you're getting is only going to help you improve and, and progress your journey as, as a public speaker. Um, I actually just recently joined Toastmasters myself, um, having found out about it through work. Uh, so if, if anybody's listening here and you don't know how to get involved in Toastmasters, the first place to start would probably be at your place of employment because a lot of companies have Toastmasters clubs uh, that they sponsor, will pay for your free membership and everything that you could be a part of. Yeah, I agree with you. It's been tremendously helpful for me with respect to impromptu speaking and even, you know, going on and creating a podcast like this. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad that you're, you're doing well with Toastmasters. I saw one of your speeches that you had posted on LinkedIn about uh, spaced repetition. I found that to be extremely fascinating. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about spaced repetition and, and how it's helped you learn more effectively? Yeah, sure. Well, it's spaced repetition is basically a technique for remembering things that you learn forever, basically retaining things to memory that you won't forget or will be very unlikely to forget. It's been backed up by a lot of research as, and it's been known for a long time to be one of the most effective ways to retain knowledge. Essentially, it's quizzing yourself on information at increasing intervals of time. So to take a silly example, say you wanted the capital of Manitoba, Winnipeg. So you quiz yourself on that. Okay, it's Winnipeg. One day later, you quiz yourself on that. Still got it. One week later, you quiz yourself. One month, one year. That's a way of you still retain the knowledge, but it 
you do so in a really efficient way because there's this huge spacing effect. So one of the tools that I use, there's lots of great tools for this now. Probably the most popular one is Anki or Anki, which is software, essentially flashcard software that handles the spacing for you. So I have cards in my Anki deck that I just answered today that won't be asked of me again for another three years. And because of the spacing, there's people that have 10 Anki decks with tens of thousands of cards. And the burden of reviewing them every day actually isn't that bad because they're just spaced out so widely. You still only need 20, you know, maybe 15, 30 minutes a day to review. So it was something, it's something I've used for a long time since my university days. Back in the day, it was Super Memo, which was the most popular software at the time. I consider it a key to my success in university and I continue to use it today. In data science, you're always trying to ramp up your skills and you always run into this issue of, you know, you read a textbook, but do you retain the information that's there? Like you don't really retain it unless you do something like space repetition or you work on some project where you get to apply it, or preferably both. I think it's a particularly valuable tool for data scientists. Yeah, definitely, man, because data science is like not an easy job by any means, right? There's a ton of continuous learning and continuous education that goes on in this field. Um, never mind just the amount of learning you have to do to even break into the field. Uh, so developing ways to help yourself learn and help yourself retain information is crucial. It kind of reminds me, in a sense, in a way, it's kind of uh, reminds me of deliberate practice. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with deliberate practice. Um, can, can you speak to, to kind of the, the similarities between these two methodologies? Yeah, absolutely. I think of deliberate practice as like kind of uncomfortable practice that really tests your knowledge. And it turns out that's what you want. You kind of want to feel a bit uncomfortable, like you're pushing yourself when you're learning. Mm -hmm. Because if it feels really easy, that's kind of a sign that maybe you're not learning so much. So mm -hmm. spaced repetition, I mean, a corollary to that is testing, well-established to be one of the most effective ways to learn because you just, you're not just passively reading. Uh, and when you passively read stuff, when you're just like reading through a textbook, it's really easy to convince yourself you understand something when you don't, mm -hmm. convince mm -hmm. yourself that you'll remember something when you won't. And as soon as you start quizzing yourself on it, you realize, oh, I actually, I didn't understand that very well at all. Or I just completely forgot that. So even if you don't use spaced repetition, deliberate practice um, or testing, you know, doing that kind of flashcard testing is really useful. Especially if, if you're trying to progress in your career as a data scientist. So awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so you had this awesome blog post on the hidden power of compounding, which I thought was an excellent read. So if anybody listening, go to marknaperberg.com, check out that blog post. Um, I especially like the four ideas you laid out for ways to compound in an area that you want to improve. Um, can you tell us more about, about this compounding and kind of touch on those four ideas that you had uh, brought to light in your blog post? Yeah, well, most people probably are somewhat familiar with compounding when they probably heard the term compound interest, which is a little bit of a boring concept of when you have a bank account and it grows at some interest rate over time. If you give it enough time, it'll grow to a counterintuitively large sum. Uh, it like snowballs. So because of the exponential growth of the, of the interest. So if um, you have a bank account growing at 7% per year in 10%, excuse me, in 10 years, your money doubles. In 20 years, it quadruples. In 30 years, you have eight times your original amount. 
So if you have enough time and you have constant growth like that, then you get some pretty huge results. The main thing in my speech that I've learned from listening to some um, people that I admire is that this doesn't just apply to bank accounts. It's something that applies to it basically, there's two underlying factors that you need. You need growth and time. Something growing at some percentage, and you're able to do that over some period of time. So it applies to any area where that happens. So particularly skills like programming or data science, sales, communication. If you can get a consistent growth rate in your skills in those areas, over time, you're going to see some pretty huge results. And who's to say that a 7% growth rate in sales is what you'd expect? I mean, maybe you can improve at 20% per year and you'd see even more fantastic results. I mean, in terms of like how to do it, anything that increases your growth rate or the number of years that you can stick to it is great. Uh, the ways I had a couple of like specific... So, there's some obvious candidates, like if you have a mentor, reading is a good idea, obviously taking classes, all those things will help you compound knowledge. I recommend having a plan is one thing because you need to be able to apply growth consistently over years. So if you don't have a plan, you're probably not going to be able to stick with it. Personally, I have a Google Doc a simple Google Doc that just lists the areas that I want to be improving in. And I just check on that every so often just to make sure I'm making some sort of progress in those areas. Another way to compound, I think, is spaced repetition, which we just talked about, because it's all about retaining knowledge over the long term. And that's obviously going to have a huge effect on compounding of your skills if you can retain what you learn indefinitely. What's up, artists? Check out our free open mastermind Slack channel, the Artists of Data Science Loft at artofdatascienceloft.slack.com. I'll keep you posted on the bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting, and it's a great environment and community for all of us to talk all things data science. Look forward to seeing you there. No, it's definitely a fascinating topic. It reminds me of this book I just recently read. I think it was called The Compound Effect. And he had an example in there where he's talking about if you get one penny every day and double it, then by the end of the month, you get some inordinate amount of money. I think it was in the multi-millions or something like that. Do you have any books that you'd recommend to to uh, our listeners around this topic? About compounding, I don't have any specific books to recommend. I guess one thing I would recommend is this guy, Tyler Cowen. He He's an economist and he has a blog called Marginal Revolution. He's the one that kind of helped me shift my thinking of, about compounding, not just in terms of bank accounts and interest rates, but something that applies to other areas of life. So if you search Tyler Cowen compounding, you can find some interesting stuff there. Awesome. Yeah, I'll definitely put that into the show notes. Cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. So let's talk about some of these awesome data science projects that you've done. Um, your products have been pretty cool. Uh, I remember when I was first looking for data scientists in Winnipeg, came across your GitHub and then the creativity you've put into your projects was pretty freaking awesome. I was wondering if you could talk to us uh, about what your creative process is like for bringing your project ideas to reality and if you have tips for up-and-coming data scientists who don't know where to start with their project. Yeah, well, the key is motivation for me. For me, a good project should have, it should be beneficial in a lot of different ways and the more ways, the better. So I'm looking for something that is relevant to a skill that I want to learn. That makes it obviously more motivating to do it in the first place. If it's, you know, even if the project doesn't work, then at least I've built up some skills that are relevant to me. Something I'm passionate or curious about, that's obviously going to have effect on the motivation. 
something that mm-hmm. other people are curious or motivated about. That's kind of a personal thing because I would want the project that I put out there to be of interest to other people just because that's a personal motivator for me. Mm-hmm. Something that's relevant to my job, um, something that could improve job prospects or your marketability where you could show to a potential employer, this is what I did. This proves that I have some skills or motivation or whatever. So the more of those benefits, the better. Um, it, in terms of like getting ideas for projects, I usually, I just write them down. I always have a note-taking thing by my side. So whenever uh, I come up with an idea, I just write it down. And I find that I actually accumulate a whole bunch of ideas that way, actually way more than I could ever possibly work on in a lifetime. So, so, so when you come up with these ideas for these projects, um, is identifying data sources ever a issue? Or, and how do you go about identifying where you can find data to start working on a project? It'll usually start with an idea and then I'll do some Googling to see if there's some data to back it up. One of my favorite types of projects to work on is data scraping projects. I think that's a really great project for data scientists to work on and because you're kind of creating your own data. You learn so much about the internet. You learn about how to work with websites, how websites work, about internet protocols. You learn about messy data because the data that you get from scraping is it's going to require a bunch of cleaning, so you got to clean it. And at the end of the day, you have this data set that maybe no one else really has because no one else has scraped it. Maybe the website owners have the data, but they're probably not doing what you're doing with it. Like one of the, my favorite projects that I've done was I scraped Marginal Revolution, Tyler Cowen's blog that I was just talking about. I scraped every page off there. And then I did a, a, a you know, put it through like a data pipeline to clean up the data. I did a little data analysis on it and then posted it on my blog. It was kind of interesting. You could see the posting habits of the different authors. Like it's, the blog is run by two guys, Alex Tabarrok and Tyler Cowen. Alex would always post at 7 a.m. All the time. So I did like a, a, a chart showing when he posted. It was just a spike at 7 a.m. And Tyler Cowan, it was like distributed evenly. So that was, and there was a little stuff like that. It, it eventually got shared on Marginal Revolution, which was really exciting to me. I've been reading that blog since 2005. There were like thousands of people going to my site. I was not expecting that. Yeah, one of my favorite projects of all time. I highly recommend scraping projects. Uh, any particular tool that you're using for web scraping? Yeah, I use... Python. Um, my Python's my main programming language, so I use that. And um, Solen- uh, it depends on the project, but Beautiful Soup is the big is probably the most popular HTML parser. So I usually use that to parse the HTML. Sometimes you have to use this other library called Selenium, which basically acts as a um, as a, it's useful on the websites when there's a lot of JavaScript, and it basically opens up the browser and interacts with the website as an end user. Would. So those are the two main tools. The requests library in Python is another one to make the HTTP requests as well. So how do they find out about your blog? Do they just notice a, a shit ton of traffic coming from a particular IP address and they just <laughs> contacted you? How did this? How did this happen? <laughs> I think uh, I think what I just I posted it on Twitter. I I posted a link to it on Twitter and I tagged Tyler Cowan. And then he kind of responded with, I can't remember how he responded, but the next day it was on his website. And I'm like, oh man, I think, yeah. I, I, think I saw my web traffic. I'm like, what, whoa, why, why are there thousands of people visiting my website? And then I, I go on his website and there's a link to it right there. So that was a, that was a pretty fun moment for me. Yeah, oh, man, one thing I should cool. mention, if you're, one thing I mentioned like with scraping projects, make sure you, you can get in trouble with scraping projects if you do... You don't want to. You don't want to down a website or do like a you know denial of service attack on a website. So be careful. You know, get some advice. Make sure you know what you're doing. But it's a great project to work on. Yeah. 
yeah, it's always pretty cool when you get like noticed by people that uh, you know, are more or less are kind of you know, heroes or, or or idols, for lack of a better word, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so that's pretty cool, man. Uh, I remember one of these projects I saw on your GitHub uh, was about the trees of Winnipeg. I thought that was oh, yeah. freaking awesome, man. Can you talk to us a little bit about that project and and kind of how did you discover the Winnipeg Open Data Portal and and you know or or do you recommend data scientists that are up and coming to use open data portals? Yeah. So I think with that project, I was <laughs> at the time when I started the project, I was, I think I was maybe interviewing for my job at the city. So I was mm-hmm. at, uh, interested in city stuff and I was looking at the website and thought, Oh, it might catch the attention of people that I'm you know able to work with data. And so I, came across this, yeah, I think I started searching open data, which is full of really interesting data. And I came across this data set of all of the trees in Winnipeg that, that are in, all, all, they're all inventoried. I think it was like 300,000 trees, at least on public property, I think. Maybe that it's not all the trees, but all of them on public property. So I just, I didn't do anything too fancy with it, but I parsed the data. I posted it um, on my website with interactive maps where you could see the distribution of trees in the city. It looked at some interesting stuff like what are the biggest trees in in diameter? Uh, what are the rarest trees? And each of them had a map where you could where you could see exactly where they were in the city. And that was basically that was basically the project. It was kind of fun. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh I remember after seeing that project on your website, I was digging around the open data portal and I found a database that had a distribution of parking tickets uh, for pretty much every parking ticket that had been given in Winnipeg for the last several years. What oh, would you yeah. say is, is the most interesting or weirdest data set that you've come across on an open data portal? I, this is kind of a cop-out answer, I guess, but I haven't... It would probably be the tree data. I wasn't expecting that at all. It was, it had the different varieties of trees. It mm-hmm. had a lot of different details about the trees. I was like, this is really amazing that this exists. And it really quite, it surprised me that is, it existed. So I'd say that was probably the weirdest. I'm sure there's much weirder when you go on <laughs> the, uh, the open data. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you realize what people need to keep track of. Uh, and yeah. the type of data sets that are out there is endless. Yeah, man. There's some for everyone, right? We got a tree data set for all the dendrophiliacs out there. So uh, <laughs> you guys enjoy that stuff. So so talk to me uh, kind of about your, your mental framework for decision-making. Um, I think I saw, was it like a blog post or I think I might have saw something on LinkedIn where you're talking about this and I found it to be to be fascinating. I was wondering if you could talk about how how this mental framework for decision making has helped you navigate the ambiguity of starting a data science project at work. The way I think about decisions is really influenced by my economics background. So economists are always thinking about costs and benefits. There's an entire subfield in economics called CBA, cost benefit analysis. That's kind of how the economists make decisions. And that's how I try to, at least as much as a human being can. So basically you have benefits and costs. If the benefits outweigh the costs, do it. If you're in one of those situations where you have different options to choose from, pick the one with the highest benefit to cost ratio. 
Um, so it sounds pretty simple, but obviously easier said than done. Within benefits and costs, there are probability and impact to kind of help you weigh how big the probability is or how big the cost is. So uh, if a benefit is high probability, like it's likely to happen and high impact, like it's a very good thing, then obviously that's going to have higher weight. If the cost is high probability and a, a higher impact, like a really, really bad thing, that's going to have higher weight. So. Um, it definitely has a lot of uh, influence over my decisions, especially in my role uh, currently at the city of Winnipeg. Um, I've had to make a lot of decisions at, at, in the role because I was actually the first person with that job title hired. Uh, first, wow. data, first data scientists at the city of Winnipeg. There's more now, but mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, there's a, some ambiguity because it's a new job. It's a new role. People aren't entirely sure what it's going to involve, like what exactly you're going to work on. So it requires some initiative and kind of an entrepreneurial view to kind of figure out how to best add value. So one of the first things I did was just talk to people. Uh, and I've, that's probably good advice for anyone starting a yeah. new job was like asking people, what, uh, getting to know people, asking them what their role is, what problems you deal with, what kind of data they have. Uh, have you thought about doing anything with it? Uh, what do you expect of me? Um, especially do it, you especially want to do this with the person that you report to directly, but generally people in the organization. So doing that to me is high benefit. You're, you get to know people, first of all, you understand their needs, you get ideas for projects, and those ideas are based in reality. They aren't just concocted up in your brain. It's based on what people actually need. So it helps you avoid building the wrong thing or spending time on the wrong thing. And the costs, I mean, I can't think of what the cost of doing that is besides your time. And then, so that's that was a clear decision to do that at first. And then after taking stock of people's needs and developing a, a huge list of potential projects, because that's probably what will happen. There'll be a lot of potential projects. And then, then you can go through each project and get a sense of the benefits and the costs of each mm-hmm. individual one. And then a winner, it'll hopefully a winner will come out or a few winners in terms of like what you're going to be doing for the next little while. Great advice, man. Thank you so much for that. So it's it's always interesting when people ask you, oh, what do you do for work? Oh, what's your job title? And you say data scientist. Have you had to kind of explain what a data scientist does to, to a lay person when you get that kind of like, what? What, what the, a data who? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer because it is a little bit ambiguous sometimes. It's a pretty broad mm-hmm. term and it can mean different things depending on the organization that you're entering into. Like I was the first data scientist hired, but there's a lot of other people working with data at the city for a long time. There's people in analyst roles, just programmers and developers work with data constantly. But the explanation I usually give is I we have a lot of data and organizations have a lot of data and we want to be able to use it. Uh, we want to be able to manage it. There's a lot of value and things that we could potentially do with the data. So we need someone, your role as a data scientist is kind of a steward of that data, of understanding the data and getting value out of it for the organization. So before we jump into our lightning round here, I wanted to ask you, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? One of the best pieces of advice I received was, uh, I, I like the saying, show, don't tell. So to me, I, I think it's much better to, I, I really, I like delivering rather than talking about delivering. So as much as I can, I try to do that. So 
don't talk about your knowledge of Apache Airflow. You know, show it by writing an article about it. You know, don't talk about your knowledge of Python. Show it by like building a web application or contributing to open source. I just think that's more effective and impressive and more fun and self and satisfying to yourself. Um, you know, if you're building a startup, uh, it's I've I've heard uh, famous I think Paul Graham, famous or someone Paul or other famous startup investors saying that it's so much more valuable to have a working prototype than a PowerPoint deck when they're when they're evaluating startups. It, it just says so much more than words to have an actual working prototype. Um, mm-hmm. So I try to follow that advice as much as I as much as I can. Like if you build interesting, useful things to people, um, if you deliver on important projects at work, uh, good things will happen. And you know, talking talking about them doesn't necessarily do much do- good. And I mean, you you want to get them in front of people, obviously, or else that's important. But um, but doing you know delivering is what's most important. That's right, man. Real artist ship, right? That's that's <laughs> awesome advice, man. Uh, I think all the work that you've done and everything you've contributed to the data science community uh, is a testament that you are living true to that advice, man. So thank you very much for for all the contributions you've made to data science and especially here in our city. Um, so let's go into our lightning round real quick. Uh, question one, you've kind of already answered. Python or R? Yeah, definitely Python. Not, I don't have anything against R. I've used R's, R a little bit, but I, I'm definitely a Python, a Python guy for sure. Awesome. Uh, same here, man. Python all the way. <laughs> so what's, <laughs> what's a book every data scientist should read? I would say I, I, I'm a big advocate of writing and being a good, uh, improving your writing skills. So there's this book called On Writing Well by William Zin. Oh my God. I'm not sure I'm able to pronounce his last name right. William Zinzer. Zinzer. Uh, it's a great book. Even if you just read the four chap, first four chapters, it's really, really valuable and with lots of insights to take away to improving your writing. Awesome. Yeah, dude. I'll definitely, I'll, I'll add that book to the show notes as well. And I think I might even get me a copy of that book. Um, so what's your favorite question to ask in a job interview? I actually haven't given that many job interviews. I have given a few, uh, but I think one of the best questions is tell me a, to just tell me a, about a project you worked on and how it's relevant to the position. It just gets so much. You get a lot of information about the candidates um, and how their skills are relevant, how they're able to explain what they did, um, get a sense of their communication skills and their technical skills. That's awesome. That's a great question, man. And, and great, great rationale behind asking that as well. Um, how about the strangest question that you've been asked in a job interview. <laughs> I was asked once, what's the difference between a geographic coordinate system and a projected coordinate system? I was a little bit taken aback. It, it was, I mean, the, the geographic uh, data analysis was relevant to the position. So I don't, I actually wasn't very happy with how I answered the question, but I was kind of taken aback. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that one. Did you end up getting the job? I did. Yep. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, <laughs> So certifications or self-directed learning? I'm a huge fan of self-directed learning, but I realize that certification, you need to, you need to show people what you did. Like you need to, essentially a certification is just a way of showing people what you did. So I think you can do both self-directed, but showing the stuff that you've worked on. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big fan. Uh, I mean, I like online courses, like there's lots of information out there, but the certifications, I'm not totally sure it's that valuable to maybe have some more acronyms 
comes at the end of your name on your resume. It depends on the certification, I guess, but I'm a big fan of self-directed, self-directed projects that you can show and release out to the public so other people can see. How can people connect with you? Where can they find you? You can go to my website, marknagelberg.com. That's where I have my blog. There's contact info there, M-A-R-K-N-A-G-E-L-B-E-R-G.com. So my blog's there. I've got uh, my Space Repetition newsletter, which talks about productive learning, space repetition, and just generally productive learning techniques. Um, And I also have a data science newsletter as well. And if if you're interested in improving your public speaking skills, I'm president of Vineo Dictum Toastmasters Club. So if you want to meet up there, that's great. We meet Wednesday nights uh, at awesome. Confusion Corner. Just reach out to me if you're interested. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Definitely, man. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's really great having you on the show. I think our listeners are going to really take a lot away from your story and your perspective on data science. So happy to have you here. Look forward to hopefully someday having you back on the show, man. Right on. Thanks so much, Harper. It's been great. 